Turn with me to 1 John. We got a lot to cover this morning. Um, as always, we, we want to cover some objections to eternal security. This is the seventh week that we've done this. One of the passages, uh, a couple of the passages I wanted to cover were in 1 John. So that, that's awesome in one sense because we're going to cover them, but it's, it's kind of difficult because there's two passages I want to try to cram in this morning because I think they'll be helpful. This is the, these are legitimate objections to the, to, to the doctrine of eternal security. And remember, when we talk about eternal security, we, what we mean by that is we're taking Jesus at face value. We believe that when he died for your sins, he died for all of them, past, present, and future, so that you would never have to face that death penalty again. That's why we believe John 3.16 says that whosoever believes, what? Shall not perish. There's that aspect of death. The wages of sin is death. You will not face death because Jesus faced it for you. But you have to put your faith in him, personal faith. You're believing that Jesus died for you. That's the prerequisite. But then John 3.16 goes on to say, not only will you not die, but you have, you presently possess eternal life. And again, not to be facetious, but how long does eternal last by definition? It lasts forever. And so we believe when, when Jesus makes that promise that when you simply believe you have eternal life, which is life that lasts forever, we believe by implication that means you can never lose it. You've got life that lasts forever. In fact, if I could do something to lose it five years from now, is it really eternal? Well, it wouldn't, by definition, I mean, that's how life insurance salesmen talk. You know, you know so, so Jesus isn't a life insurance salesman. He's saying that I, the reason he could offer it is because the penalty has been paid in full. There's no more debt to be paid. That's what we believe. But again, there's these passages in the word of God that you got, you kind of scratch your head and you're like, yeah, I know that's what, this means, I, I know this is eternal security, but, but what about, and we're going to look at some of those this morning, what about 1 John chapter 2? Turn with me to chapter 2, if you're not already there, we're going to start in verse 3. Before we dive into the passage, this is going to be like the shortest context adjustment period in, my, in the history of my life, because we got to get into the text, but, I, but I, at the same time, I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to come to the Bible, like I said a couple weeks ago, just ripping a verse here, ripping a verse here, ripping a sentence here, flipping over here, doing... I, I want to kind of try to at least handle the text accurately. And these are very debatable texts, and so I want to make sure that we kind of have an understanding. And so very first thing I want to talk about is, is the theme of 1 John. theme of 1 John is simply this, written to believers. We'll talk about briefly why we think that. Most likely in Asia Minor, more specifically, probably in the city of Ephesus. So modern day Turkey is probably where this letter was written. And what was the, the reason? It was to encourage them to walk with the Lord in the face of a couple things. What I call normal obstacles that, that hinder every believer in every time frame in history. Normal obstacles, but also to walk with the Lord in the face of false teaching. Something called Gnosticism was getting taking hold in Asia around this time. And it was, a, it was a heresy that had many different splinters. But one of the things that we know that the Apostle John was writing to believers, one of the things that we at least um, take from the text is he personally identifies himself with the readers. He uses a lot of we and us. And so he's, he's writing to a group. He calls them little children. He calls them beloved. He calls them children of God. I mean, there's lots of identifiers throughout the epistle to say that John is not thinking, well, I'm writing to a group. I'm not sure if they're saved or not. No, he's writing to a saved 
group of people, and we see that come through in his terminology. So again, the audience written to believers, but probably mostly Gentile believers. That's mostly who inhabited the city of Ephesus, but it was probably some believing Jews as well. And so there's probably a a mixture here. What was the reason for writing? Well, this is where the debate sets in. And it's, it's a pretty interesting debate. In fact, if you Google First John and, and, and you say, what is the theme of First John? Or even if you go on Google Images and just say First John, you'd be interested to see what comes up. Now, I'm going to tell you what I believe are a couple of reasons that everybody can agree with. But let me just tell you that one of the reasons this is an objectionable passage is because there are many well-known Bible teachers. I'm going to name a name, but again, Anytime I name a name, it's not because, I don't even know why I have to get, let me give the disclaimer. I would feel better. You're probably like, you don't need to give a disclaimer, but I'm going to give it because I feel better. It's not because I think I'm better than this person. It's not because we think our church has the corner on truth and we're the only church in the world that teaches truly. All I'm using his name for is to tell you that I would criticize his interpretation. I don't know what type of man he is. I hope he, I, from all appearances, he's got a great marriage. People love him, right? So it's not, so it's, again, I'm, it's, this isn't an ad hominem attack. I'm not attacking his character. I'm not trying to be a politician where I can't defend my views, so I'm just going to attack his person. It's none of that. But I just mentioned it so you're aware. One of the guys that will come up a lot is John MacArthur. And John MacArthur will tell you, this is where the debate comes in, that the main theme of 1 John is to give you 11 tests to see whether or not you're truly saved, okay? That's what he would say is the theme of 1 John. 11 tests that if you pass those tests right now in this, in the present time, then you can be assured of your salvation. But if you don't pass those tests, and the silence drops, right? (laughs) But he would go on to say, if you don't pass those tests, then, you know, you should question your salvation, you should wonder whether or not you're saved. Right off the bat, those who have sat under any teaching here, whether you agree with John MacArthur or not, the, the problem I have immediately with that is now I'm, now I'm going to subjective evaluations by myself, on myself, to gain assurance of salvation. And what have I done when I do that? I've taken my eyes off of Jesus Christ and his finished work. And I'm here to tell you, if your assurance is based on anything else than the finished work of Jesus Christ, you will have no assurance or you'll be the most arrogant person in the room thinking that you are good enough to go to heaven. And quite frankly, I don't know what's worse out of those two options. But it's not a good place to be. And John MacArthur comes up with 11. Other Bible teachers come up with nine. I guess I like nine better because I I don't have to hate 11. I can only hate nine of them, right? There's this fluctuation between these tests of salvation. And is that what John is teaching? That's the question. And so their argument would be that it is. And that's why this is, these are debatable passages. The two themes that most people agree on, if we can keep them generic, is this. John wrote to warn of false teaching and false teachers. Gnosticism being one of them. Judaism even. Docetism, which kind of had this weird separation of the person of Jesus Christ. You've got all these things. Serenthus was a well-known Gnostic that impacted that area. And so he's writing to warn the believers not to get involved in this. And, and the idea is that there was some kind of secret knowledge. Like, yeah, we've got the Bible, but, that, but there's some secret knowledge that you don't have, that I have. That's kind of Gnosticism. 
in a nutshell. And I know there's lots of splinters off of that, but he was warning them basically of this false teaching and false teachers coming into their body. In fact, one of the things that we, let me go back, one of the things that we learn is in chapter two, many of the false teachers had been a part of their body at some point, and now they were outside the body trying to attract people to come with them. We see that in chapter two. So this is kind of how we see this. So I think many people will agree that this is a theme of First John. The other theme is to encourage believers to walk with the Lord and to enjoy abundant life. Okay, I think this is a theme that many Bible teachers can agree on, that this kind of works its way through the book of 1 John. So fellowship with God is the essence, the essence of enjoying the eternal life that we already possess as believers. You know, one of the things as you, as you look through the book of 1 John is you're going to see that false teaching tries to rob you of this. False teaching is never going to point to all you have in Christ. It's always going to point to what you lack, you see? And that's, that's what's so fascinating because Paul's mindset in Colossians chapter 2 is what? You're complete in him. What does complete mean if it doesn't mean you have everything? In fact, go further. Ephesians 1.3, you've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. And if all doesn't mean all, then what does it mean? So the, the encouragement of the word of God is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you got what you need. You got it all. It's, I've told this story before, and I probably shouldn't get off here, but, but I want to. Um, you know, we used to take our kids to a children's nighttime clinic. You know, it was one of those 24 hours, so we didn't have to go to the emergency room. Now they call them urgent cares. I don't know what they called them in that day. We would take our kids there, and after their appointment, this particular urgent care had a fake treasure chest. And they would tell the kids, come over here. I mean, when I went to the doctor, I mean, I might've got a sticker, right? I mean, some still give stickers. This was a treasure chest. You got to open it up. And they were like, okay, you can take one, take one. That is the worst thing to tell a child because they, they will dig. Now, if they weren't sick before, now they're going to get sick because they're going to be digging through the treasure chest, picking up all sorts of germs, but they, they pick one. And I feel like sometimes people view God that way. That when God says, I'm going to give you a blessing, it's like, here you go, here's one. Here you go, okay, you can have another one. And I love the imagery. No, God took the treasure chest and he said, stand right here. And he just went, dumped it on your head. (laughs) All spiritual blessings, you are complete in Christ. False teaching says, no, you lack something, you need this. And typically it's, you need this from me. Right? It always comes back to them. What's incredible about the book of 1 John is, is its relation to the gospel of John. Both the gospel of John and 1 John deal with eternal life. The gospel of John tells you how to get it. 1 John tells you how to enjoy it. That's the contrast. How can you be born again and obtain eternal life? It's through faith in the finished work of Christ. How can you enjoy eternal life? It's through walking by faith, moment by moment. It's by being in fellowship with the Lord. It's through having your known sins confessed. It's by continuing to walk in the light. This is the contrast that we draw between the two. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. I love that picture. I wonder if that lady behind him is his wife or his girlfriend. And then are they still together today after he's seen that picture? But anyway, sorry. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Let's read it. Now by this we know... 
that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Verse 3 there, and, and what I want you to notice, you know, in terms of themes, I want you to notice a couple of things here just in the passage that we, we read. I want you to see that the word know is used four times, okay? You see, it's a pretty key word in this passage. And then I want you to notice that keep is used three times, okay? I just want you to see that in your text. We'll kind of work through why that might be significant. But understand that when you've got a key word repeated like that, Pay attention to it, right? As we're trying to interpret the word of God, we just want to pay attention. Is there something we can gain out of that? In fact, when we look at the word no in the book of 1 John, I think it's used like 39 times. Different derivatives of the word no or to be known. So it's, it's used a lot. That's a lot in five chapters, 39 uses. But anyways, we point that out simply to say this. Typically in English, when we give a conditional statement, we typically go if this, then this. We typically go in that order right? Interesting thing about the Greek is it's one of those languages, I think Russian is like, I don't know if anyone speaks Russian, but Russians, I think, like this as well, where you can, you can mix up the, the word order. So if you want to emphasize the verb, you can just put that in the front of the sentence. If you want to emphasize a direct object, and I know I'm losing everyone that doesn't like English grammar, just hang on with me. If you want to put the direct object, you want to emphasize that, you can jam that at the front of the sentence. And I don't know how they understood when they talked to one another, but they did. And so does People in Russian, they, they picked that up. But notice in our passage here, we've got a conditional statement, if we keep his commandments, but we've got the then before it. Let's deal with the conditional statement first. I think this would be helpful. If we keep his commandments, remember, and I've said this before, but in the Greek, there's four conditional statements. There's four types of conditional statements. And they all have an, an emphasis. This is what's called a third-class condition. What it means or what the, the thrust is, if we keep his commandments, and I hope we will. By the way, is John talking directly to them or is he including himself in this conversation? He's including himself, we. Basically, the idea is maybe you will, maybe you won't. I hope that you will. And more specifically, John is saying, maybe I will, maybe I won't, but I hope that I will. You see, there's a conditional aspect here built in. And so the third class condition communicates hope that the condition will be fulfilled, but there's some uncertainty or doubt in the writer's mind as to whether or not the condition will be met. So he's giving that type of condition. This is probably most like our condi- the way we use conditional statements in English. It's, it's very much like this one. So it's very telling that John includes himself in the conditional statement. That's just an observation to, to start with. The condition is this, Keeping his commandments. If you have an NIV this morning, don't feel bad. I'm going to make a couple comments about the NIV. I usually try not to. I think for the most part, it's a good translation. But again, I'm not a Greek expert. I'm not saying that I know Greek better than the translators. I'm just trying to make a critical observation of their translation. And here's the observation. The Greek word is tereo. It means to guard. It means to keep an eye on. It means to watch or observe attentively. Here's what I want you to take out of your thinking, which is I've seen not only in translation work, but I've also seen in small group Bible studies over the year and teaching. 
This word keep does not equal obedience. Please, please make that note. I want to make the qualification here. But typically when, when I read or we read 1 John 2, 3, and it says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. The person looks up from the text, says, see, we've got to obey his commandments to really know that we know him. It's related to obedience. Don't get me wrong, it can be, but it's not obedience. There's a totally different Greek word for that. Hupa kuo. That's obedience, okay? That's obedience. This is tereo. It was used of a warden guarding a prisoner. What do wardens do when they guard the prisoner? Do they obey the prisoner? Hey, warden, go get the keys and let me out. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you. No, they're keeping their eyes close on them. They're guarding them. They're, they're valuing them because if they let them go, especially in this culture, they could, they could lose their life. So they're watching them. That's the idea that's communicated here. That's the idea that's communicated here. And so the ultimate goal or outcome of tereo or keeping is obedience to God's commandments, his manner of life. However, this is the important point. It's not in and of itself synonymous with obedience. And if you, if you want more proof, we don't have time to develop this morning, just go do a Strong's Concordance search of this word and just read everywhere it's used in the New Testament. It'll, the, the meaning will come through, okay? Because even in Revelation, Jesus says, I, he's telling a church, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's about to come on the whole earth. He, he's not obeying the church, right? It's, in other words, it's not synonymous. It's, I'm just, I want to make that point because so many of us, I think naturally we just gravitate toward that, toward that understanding and it's just not there in the wording. What we see here is what does Tereo mean? It's a hard attitude. We're talking about your, your valuation of Jesus Christ's words. Do you take them serious? Do you hold high esteem? Do you keep your eyes on them throughout your week? Or do you pull out of the church parking lot? And you're like, man, I'm glad that's over. We'll be back next Sunday. But now it's on to what I want to do. You know, and many people, I mean, we would never say that. <laughs> I mean, but practically, that's how our lives can work out. And then throughout the week, we make thousands upon thousands of little minute decisions. We have thousands or hundreds of conversations, depending on how much you talk with people. And we never at any stretch, at any point, even consider what Jesus might have to say in that conversation, at your job, in our activities, how we spend our time. We just rip and roar and do our thing. That is not keeping Jesus's commandments. That is a heart, mental, motive, attitude that is not in line with what's being instructed here. If we keep, and maybe we do. Sometimes you have a good week or a good day. We, we're really occupied with the Lord. It's, those are great days. And you know what? Sometimes you don't. Sometimes we won't. And if you do it all the time, I want to meet you and rub your hand or your head or whatever you'll let me touch because I want some of what you got. Because that's what we want. We want to be more consistent, right, in our walk with the Lord. And we want to value what Jesus Christ says, because a lot of people say, well, if you have the right heart, you will obey. And a lot of people come in with that. And I think to myself, wow, I'm about to be sarcastic, so I don't mean to be harsh. But I'm like, wow, maybe you should have been around when the apostle Paul was writing Romans 7. And you could have told him that. 
Because in Romans chapter 7, what does Paul say? The things that I want to do, my heart wants to do, I love the law of God, those things I can't find the power to do. And the things that I don't want to do, that I despise, that aren't in line with Jesus' words, those are the very things I'm practicing. Oh, see, Paul, you just have to really want it bad, and then it'll just work out for you. No way. He wanted it bad through tears, it, it appears, in the way that he writes that in Romans chapter 7. So it doesn't, uh, it doesn't automatically lead to obedience. It's a good start for obedience, But what did Paul learn in Romans 7 and 8? Again, kind of giving off topic here, but it's very important to understand that you can have the right heart attitude. You can love the word of God, but if you are not utilizing the resources you possess in Jesus Christ, you won't execute any obedience. You'll be a failure in the Christian life. And Romans 7 is going to describe your Christian life more than Romans 8 does, which is victory from sin, power of the Holy Spirit, walking in fellowship with the Lord, those kind of things. And we don't want anyone to get stuck in Romans 7. Paul didn't want to get stuck in Romans 7. He cries out, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's like I'm carrying around a dead body and it's just rotten on my back. That's what sin is like. That's what living in sin is like. It's not the heart attitude will produce obedience, but it's a good start, right? It's a good start to know that something is clicking in your, in your thinking apparatus that's correct. When we talk about Tereo, the mental attitude is key to being in fellowship with the Lord. And you know what? It goes right with the context because we didn't have time to develop, but coming out of chapter one, what is John talking about? How we have this fellowship. Look at, look at John 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us And truly our fellowship was with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, why? That your joy may be full. See, to have true joy in life, it only comes through fellowship with the Lord, period, period. That's what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about. Is we're like, oh yeah, I think I can get it this way. Oh, no, that didn't work. I'll turn around. I think I can get it this way. And people spend their entire lives looking and running down dead-end roads until they finally, hopefully, come to the realization, you know what? It's Jesus Christ or nothing. It's only Jesus. That's, that's my key. I know that sounds cliche. I don't care. It's true. It's true. That's what the Word of God teaches. He is talking about fellowship. And this mental attitude is key to that. Now, we go to this next phrase, if we keep his commandments, the condition now being met It says that if this happens, we know that we know him. That's kind of a tongue twister, isn't it? But we know that we know him. And know has the idea of coming to know or gaining knowledge. It's, It's the type of knowledge that we might use as we're developing a relationship or friendship. Even today, my wife and I are coming up on 21 years of marriage. And I'm, amen, yeah, thanks. Yeah, praise God for her. That's, that's been much more difficult for her, I'm sure. But you know, I'm still getting to know my wife because the woman's changing. Like she won't stay the same. Like she's growing. She's doing all sorts of things. I was like, I used to be able to know what she would order on a menu. And now I'm just like in total excitement and awe. Like what is she going to get? You know, I mean, she's changing. She's developing, but we're getting to know one another. That's, that's called intimacy. That's called fellowship. If I still went to a restaurant now and I 
got what she liked the day we got married, I'm gonna be out of touch. I might even offend her because knowledge in that sense relationally never gets stale. It's designed, it shouldn't get stale, amen, for those of us married. I mean, it's designed to continue to move and adjust as we go through different things in life, as we grow, as we mature, etc. So when we talk about knowledge here, it's interesting because he uses a word know that means over the process of time, to come to know. The only reason I say that is because many people, and, and it's real easy to do, this isn't really a critical thing, it's just an observation, but we see the word know here, and we automatically assume that it's talking about somebody that's saved. We say, oh, we know him, like justification. He, this is how we know that we're saved, and that's how many people take it. But is this word a technical word for being saved? Well, you know, interestingly enough, the scriptures do use this word to describe whether or not someone's saved. Matthew 7, 21 through 33, a very good one, right? Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do this? Depart from me, I never knew you. It's the idea they were never saved. So the scriptures do use that term to describe someone who's saved. But ironically enough, the scriptures use the same word to describe somebody that's unsaved. Romans chapter one, they know God through creation. They know God through their consciences, but they're clearly not saved. He identifies that group of people in Romans one as those who the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven against. So I only say that to say that this word no is not a technical term for a believer. In other words, every time I see the word no in scripture, oh, that's a believer, that's a believer. That's, it doesn't work that way. It's not a technical term used only of believers. So it, it causes us, un, uh, unfortunately and unfortunately, to do a little bit more work in the text to figure out what he's talking about. He's talking about believer? He's talking about unbeliever here. Well, we also see the use, I, those of you that don't know Philippians 3.10, of no describing spiritual growth or fellowship with the Lord. That's why Paul in Philippians 3.10, the apostle writing to the church at Philippi, which he had founded, that I may know him. Paul wasn't praying that he get saved. I think he was already, I don't think, he was already saved. Acts 9, he got saved, right? He got saved on the road to Damascus. He had planted the church in Philippi. He's not talking about getting saved in Philippians 3.10. He's talking about growing spiritually growing in this intimacy of knowledge of the Lord. And so this is how I believe that this is used in our passage. If you want to know that you're growing in intimacy and growing in your fellowship with the Lord, you're gonna keep his commandments. You're gonna value what he says. You're gonna have a hard attitude that says, I wanna do what Jesus wants me to do. That's one indicator. Again, John is giving many indicators throughout the passage. In fact, what's really interesting is the word know is put in the perfect tense here. And perfect tense means completed event with ongoing results in the present. And so even the emphasis of the word know, if it was a, just a justification knowledge, he would use the aorist tense. Because you, you knew that at a point in time, you trusted in Christ or something to that effect. But here he says it's know and then it's a continuing knowledge. Okay, that's the emphasis here. And so it all points to this ongoing intimacy with the Lord. Verse four, he who says, I know him and does not, again, keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Simply put, one cannot be in fellowship with the Lord and growing spiritually if they don't value, guard, keep their eye on Jesus's commandments. In fact, 
if this is true of somebody, it just means that truth is not a dynamic or controlling influence in their life. And they're out of touch with spirituality. Think of any other relationship that works that way. To tell somebody, I don't care what you think, I don't care what you say, I'm going to go do myself. Love you, I'll see you for dinner later on tonight. Right? It just, you know, when you, when you have that hard attitude, there's one thing that's true. You're out of fellowship with that person, period. If you don't care, you don't value what they say, you're going to do things the way that you do. And, and, you know, to take this out of the realm of speculation, do you know that there are things going on in our world that are contrary to the word of God and, you know, believers in an effort to be loving and accepting are accepting them? And I'm not saying, like, you can't accept a person, but in terms of accepting what they do as being okay, what we're basically doing is says, you know, Jesus, you say this about this topic, or you recorded your word through the apostles on this topic, and you know what? I'm going to take the opposite view. In fact, Lord Jesus, thank you for the Bible, but on this particular situation, I think I'm going to sit in authority over it. Most of the time, Lord, I want it to sit over in authority on me, but on this particular situation, on this particular topic, I'm going to sit on top of the Bible. I'm going to evaluate whether or not what you are saying is correct or not. You know, many people approach the Word of God that way. And when they approach the Word of God that way, here's one thing we can know. They're not in fellowship with the Lord. They are not valuing the words of Jesus Christ. They're taking their thoughts and they're elevating. I mean, think about that. You're taking our thoughts. We don't even know all the animals that exist on this earth. They haven't even been discovered yet, many of them. They're still finding new species. Guess what? The God of the universe spoke all that into existence. Every single thing that we're figuring out. And so for you and I to take a situation that we think that we know more about it than Jesus Christ, it's almost laughable that we would ever take that position. And yet many times that's exactly what we do through the way that we practically live our lives. And we want to sit under the authority of God's word and what he says. Moving on to verses five and six. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So again, what's the condition? Keeping, keeping his word in the present. And then what's the outcome of that? Well, we're gonna look at that. Whoever keeps his word, we're gonna see that the love of God is perfected in him. Great word. I I love that word because again, it means to complete It means to make perfect by reaching the intended goal. It doesn't mean that you've reached the intended goal. That's not what this word represents. It means that it's working toward the intended goal. It's a process of time. This verb is also in the perfect tense. Again, it's indicating a a completed event with ongoing results. It's emphasizing a process. And we've talked about this enough, but justification is not a process. To be declared righteous before God is not a process of life. It's a moment in time when you transfer your faith from whatever else you were trusting in to get you to heaven and you put your faith in the the one who the Bible identifies as a savior, the one who died for you and rose again. Romans 5.1, therefore having been what? Justified how? By faith. By faith in the finished work of Christ. That is how you're declared righteous by God. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a process of time moving toward 
toward an intended goal. And what is he moving toward that intended goal? The outflow of love in your life. In fact, if you've got a spouse right now, I, I, won't, I would say raise your hand, but don't, don't raise your hand. <laughs> but if you have a spouse right now that loves you perfectly, the way you want to be loved, need to be loved every moment of your day, raise your hand internally. And if you are the spouse and you think that you love your spouse perfectly every second, keep your hand down. We'll, just, we'll handle that one for you. That doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Because love isn't something you just get in full one day. It's like, oh, God, hey, man, God gave me love. I'll never be unloving again, right? Love is directly attached to a source. That's why the fruit of the Spirit, the very first thing, the fruit of the not your fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the very first thing mentioned on the list is what? Love. It is as you are walking in fellowship with the Lord, drawing on the resources of the Spirit of God, that you can love other people the way God wants you to love them. And every wife and every husband and every child and every parent and every grandparent in this room says, hallelujah, I want to be loved like that and I want to love others like that. Wouldn't you want to love people the way God loves them? I do. I joke, I joke all the time, but I feel sorry for my wife. I want to love my wife the way Jesus Christ would love her if he was here. And I oftentimes fall short. And I want to love my friends the way Jesus Christ would love them and I oftentimes fall short. I want to love my mom. I want to love my brothers that way. And I often fall short. So isn't it nice to know that the love of God can be perfected or worked out in my life if I will simply do one thing? This is what I love about God. He doesn't ask you to crank out love. He doesn't demand that you start firing it up and figuring out how to love people. He says, you know what? Just value what I tell you. Just respond to my word by faith. Just take me by the hand through life and walk with me. And I'm going to do something in and through you that will blow your mind, will blow everyone's mind that's around you. I'm going to perfect love. And so we see this working out in our passage here. And so this indicates that the moment a believer is in fellowship with the Lord, the moment a believer is in fellowship with the Lord, they have access to the love of God in and through their lives to others. That's what the Spirit of God wants to produce in and through us. And you know what? There's one more thing we can know from verses 5 through six. And notice what he says there at the end of verse five. He says, by this, we know that we are in him. By this, by what? Well, we trace that back to its antecedents, keeping his word. When we keep his word, we can know that we are in him. So some will take, again, this is why it's debated. Some will take the phrase in him here and say that John is saying that whoever is truly saved, whoever's in Christ, that's kind of how they'll use it, will keep Jesus's commandments. And so the question is, is that what John is saying here? That's how many people would take this phrase in him. And, and rightfully so, because how does Paul typically use the phrase in him? He uses it as a positional truth that describes a believer. And we would say, yeah, unbelievers are not in him. Only believers are in him. And so they say, well, if John is talking about in him, he says, you got to keep his word or you're not in him. Then they'll say, see, if you don't keep his word, you're not saved. It makes sense. I, I, you know, I'm not trying to be overly critical. I understand where the view comes from. I just disagree with it because what you find in the book of John is he is much more, uh, in First John, he is much more heavily influenced by John 15 in his terminology 
than what Paul's talking about. I think they're using this phrase, two different focuses or aspects. Paul is always talking about how do you get in him, and that's through the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. John is talking about abiding in him. He's pulling directly out of John 15, and so when he abbreviates in him, I'm going to use a big word here, which if all my English teachers saw me while I was growing up use these kind of words, they would just laugh because that's, this is not me. But it's, it's called ubiquitous shorthand. And what I mean by that is this, is that when, when a person is writing to an audience that's familiar with him, many times you, you, reduce, you, reduce, you reduce, reduce, goodness gracious, you reduce the phrase to a shorthand version, okay? So instead of saying abide in him, using that whole phrase, I believe he just reduces it to in him. Now, what textual evidence do I have for that? Well, look at what he follows up with in verse 6. He who says he abides in him. So I don't think he's contra, I don't think he's making a distinction between those who are saved and those who are walking with him. I think he's using the in him as shorthand for abide in him. We do that all the time. We've, there's something called free grace theology. And if you're not familiar with it, it's okay. But, but in, within those circles, someone would say, oh, that guy over there, he's got a good clarity ministry. And if you don't have no clue what, free, what he's talking about, clarity of what? What's he talking What's a clarity ministry? What does that mean? Well, those in the free grace theology camps know what? what? What does that mean? It means they're clear on the gospel. They emphasize faith as the only response to the gospel. And so if someone has a clarity ministry or that person preaches clarity, we don't need the whole phrase defined for us. You can use ubiquitous shorthand and we know exactly what they're talking about. And so I believe John is, is doing that here. I believe he's using what I would call ubiquitous shorthand for the phrase abiding in him by just reducing it to in him. And again, he uses these abbreviated phrases. So what's he saying here? What's the, the ultimate thing that he's saying? Well, if we keep his commandments, if we value them, if we guard them, we keep our eyes on them, we adjust our thinking to them, then guess what we can know? Right now in the present tense, we can know that we're abiding in him. If that's your heart's desire, your motive, you can know that you're in fellowship with him. And how many times have you as a believer, wondered, you'll hear a sermon or you read a book and you'll, someone will say, we got to walk by faith. We got to walk by faith. We got to abide in Christ. We need to be in fellowship with the Lord. And you go, yes, 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 I want that. But what does that look like? How can I know? How can I know that I'm walking with the Lord? And John's given us some indicators here. These are some indicators to know, are you walking with the Lord? Are you in fellowship with the Lord? If you blow Jesus Christ off, if you're giving him a stiff arm off right tackle, I don't care how great you feel, how emotionally happy you are, you're not in fellowship with the Lord, period. And so these are some of the things that give us a great indicator here. It says, who who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walks. Simply put, if a believer says they're in fellowship with the Lord, they're abiding in him then they are indebted or bound by obligation to live the way that Jesus did. And I think that makes sense. I think that resonates with all of us. If, you, if you're going to talk the talk, right, then you need to walk the walk. It's kind of the, the deal. And there are people all over the country that I've met over the years who are blatantly denying or rejecting the word of God and claiming that they've never had a closer relationship to Jesus Christ than they do that time. And I just say, man, wow. First John says that can't be, (laughs) 
That just can't be the case. I don't know what you're feeling. I don't know, uh, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's the, the way the chili handled your stomach last night. Maybe that's the flurry. I don't know. But it's not spiritual growth. It's not fellowship. It's not intimacy with the Lord. If you don't value what Jesus Christ says, you can't have intimacy or fellowship with the Lord. You're out of fellowship. It's a key indicator to understand. Let's transition to another passage. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. In fact, let me read verses 4 through 6 because this is kind of a unit. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Verse 4 talks about whoever commits sin is, commits lawlessness. Part of an aspect of Gnosticism that was going on in this day was, what's the word? It was Epicurean. That, that's kind of the group that brought this in. But the idea was that your spirit and your body were completely separate and that God only cared about your spirit and that there's a spiritual nature that, that God cares about. And in essence, God doesn't care what you do with the body. So your body has needs. If you want to engage in gross immorality, if you want to go out and, and do drugs, if you want to get involved in story, it doesn't matter because it's just your body. God doesn't care about that. There's this separation basically saying that God had no use for your human body. It's got its own needs. Just feed the needs of your body. This is part of what John is combating here. He's saying, look, by the way, does God, is God interested in your body? I mean, clearly he talks about it all the time. Romans 12, 1 and 2. What are we to present to him? Our bodies as living sacrifices. And I'll just say this. If you've got a body and you're here today, you're attending, which everyone does, God wants to use you. God can use you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got a body, he can use you. Gnosticism tried to separate this. And so John is just saying, it doesn't matter who commits the sin. It's still sin. It doesn't get sprinkles and, and frosting on top of a believer's sins. I mean, it's still sin. It's gross sin. And, and in fact, he's going to go on to say, basically, this is why Christ came. This is why he was even manifested. And guess what? In Jesus Christ, there's no sin. You say you're in fellowship with him and you're living in sin. You're not living from the source of Jesus Christ. There is no sin in him. We'll come back to the implications there. But he says, you know that he was manifested. And so it's, it's just, this is given as a reminder to, to show how serious God took sin. You know, if God didn't take sin serious, if he didn't take sin's penalty serious, he would have never sent Jesus Christ to die and suffer the way that he did. That was serious business 2,000 years ago. That was a drastic manifestation of the deep, deep love of God to give up his one and only son. He takes sin very serious, and he provided a way so that none of us would have to ever face that consequence. Jesus did it for us. That's the good news of the gospel. He's just saying, you know, Christ was given to clean up your mess. Why would you continue living in sin? That's kind of the, the aspect that comes out here. And he says, in Christ, there is no sin. He just reminded Jesus never sinned. There's no sin that can be found in Jesus. In fact, there's no way that Jesus will ever sin. There's not one day that we, we, we hope, oh, I hope Jesus stays happy so he never sins. No, you can rest assured that there is no sin found in Jesus Christ. He is the one and only person that you find out more about and you like everything you see. 
You like everything you see. You're, not, you're never going to find a wart on Jesus Christ. You're like, ooh, I didn't know that was there. That does happen in other relationships. Set the stage. He comes back to a fellowship concept. Go with me now to verse 6. How do you know? How can you know that you're in fellowship walking with the Lord? Well, verse 6 says, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, I said I was going to be a little bit hard on the NIV this morning. And I'm sorry if you like the NIV. Like I said before, it's, it's mostly a good translation. This is just one of those areas, I think, even from a, I think even if you sat down Greek scholars, they would say, ooh, that's, uh, that's not much a, as much of a translation as it is an interpretive translation here. Because the NIV in verse 6 says this, and see if you can pick up the difference. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Did you pick up the difference? They're bringing out this continual or ongoing aspect of sin. Now, the reason they're doing that is there's a theology behind this. And that is, if you're a believer, you can sin a little and still be saved. But if you go on sinning and you are habitually sinning and you don't stop sinning or you live in unrepentant sin, then the view, erroneous, I believe, teaches that it proves you never were saved. And so a lot of times they'll go to the NIV to, to kind of prove that. Now, I want you to know something that the, the, the verb here is present tense. The, ver, uh, the verb sin is present tense. But do you know that there are 10 different uses of the present tense in the Greek language and only one of them emphasizes continual or ongoing action? That's why you gotta, we have to be careful with that. We've gotta be good students of the word of God if we're gonna take it that way. What does present tense indicate? Typically a present tense just by itself indicates something that's going on right now. That's what present tense indicates. Whether it's ongoing, habitual, continual action, The context has to dictate that. But the present tense itself doesn't dictate that. And I think you could talk to any Greek scholar, more more Greeky than me, which is not hard to do, and they would agree with that statement. It's people have oversimplified the present tense, and it's a great example of how that happens in the NIV. What is he saying? Whoever abides, again, it's a adjectival participle here, which just means it's describing a person, the abiding person. One, to abide means what? To remain or stay where you've been placed. And it's drawn directly from Jesus' teaching in John 15. That's John was there. He was in the upper room or wherever that conversation, there's some debate on where that conversation took place in John 15, but he was there. He heard that teaching. And it's obviously, it's made an impact on his life. So he's talking about abiding. Whoever abides in him, again, does not sin. Now, abiding is used oftentimes in the scripture as a synonym for a couple of things, very important being in fellowship with the Lord, walking by means of the Spirit, walking in the fear of the Lord. John uses another phrase in chapter one, walking in the light. Those are all synonyms for abiding. So we're talking about spiritual growth. We're talking about bearing acceptable fruit to the Lord, which can only happen when you're in fellowship. And he uses the word to abide. So what does he mean by the person who abides in him does not sin? Well, It means that when a believer is abiding in Christ, at that moment, they do not sin. In other words, it's proving his point. If you say you're abiding in Christ and you're living in sin, I know something about you. That can't happen at the same time. Either 
You're walking according to the flesh or you're abiding in Christ. You can't be abiding in Christ and walking according to the flesh at the same time. In fact, we've got another passage that we go to a lot. And this is just logical sense, but Galatians 5.16, right? Walk in the spirit. That's the command. And then what does it finish off? And you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And it's even stronger, right? Because it's, we've talked about this. It's a double negation there. It's walk in the spirit. You'll never, no, not ever fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so what's the key to not fulfilling the lust of the flesh? It's walking in the spirit. That's, that's the key. And when you're walking in the spirit, you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh because the spirit of God is controlling you and influencing you. To say that you're abiding in Christ and living in sin at the same time is telling me that you believe that the Spirit of God takes you by the hand and leads you into sinful activity. God forbid that we would hold that view of the Scriptures. This is what I believe John is saying there. He's not saying if someone's truly saved, they don't sin. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying if someone's truly saved, they won't continue in sin. In fact, let me ask you a question. If you can sin once, can you sin twice? If, it's, if you're capable of sinning once, can you, are you capable of sinning twice? Yeah. If you're capable of sinning twice, are you capable of sinning three times? On and on and on. It sounds pretty habitual to me, if that's the case, for many of us in our life. And so he's not talking about habitual sin. I, I want to go back to another verse here in a second to show why that, that can't be the case either. Even within the book of 1 John, it would contradict itself. So again, Someone erroneously teach here that if a person is really saved, and, and that's how they would interpret the real meaning of abide, that they would not habitually sin. And so again, they take that present tense, emphasize this continual aspect of the verb. And I just think it's an oversimplification of the Greek language. That's probably the best way to put it. So what is this teaching? That's the question. Let's go on. Whoever sins is also a participle, again, it, the only reason I bring that out is because we're not emphasizing the activity. We're emphasizing the person who sins. It's adjectival. It's describing a person. But whoever sins has neither seen him nor know him. The point is this, either the believer's abiding or they're not. Either the believer's walking by means of the Spirit or they're not. They're either walking in the light or walking in the darkness. There's only two options here for the believer. There's no middle ground. And then he goes on to say that if, if someone sins, they neither seen him or known him. Seeing him means to perceive with the eyes. They're not only just saying they, they see, but they're actually taking it in with perception. Knowing him, again, is gained knowledge. They're not growing in intimacy if the believer lives in sin. So when a believer is not abiding in Christ and thus walking according to the flesh, the point is they are not living with understanding of Jesus. They're not in him in the sense of abiding in him. They're not taking advantage of the resources they possess in him. They're not realizing the danger and consequences of living in sin. And so it's this emphasis on relationship. They're living out of fellowship with him and then they're unable to please him at the same moment. There's not an intimacy there when we're walking in sin. There's not an intimacy and fellowship with the Lord. Something is described here in the verbs as disrupting the fellowship. And that, that thing that disrupts fellowship with the Lord is what? It's sin. And it's got ongoing results. That's why both of these words, again, are used in the perfect tense. Completed event, the disruption event of sin with ongoing results, meaning you remain out of fellowship. You don't see things clearly when you're out of fellowship with the Lord. And this is really the emphasis here. 
One of the things I, I find interesting with this passage, especially those who would take this as, as a present tense, is hold your finger in 1 John 3, and then we're going to flip back to 1 John 1. 1 John 3, 6, again, says this, you know, whoever uh, abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither, neither seen him nor known him. As I pointed out, many people will take that as a present tense, continual action. And so the way they would read that is, again, if you've got an NIV, you can just read it. He says, whoever abides in him does not continue to sin. And then whoever continues to sin has neither seen him. One of the problems with that interpretation is that if you're going to take present continual tense there, you've got to do it back in 1 John 1. And when you do that in 1 John 1, you set up this incredible contradiction by John. And it causes actually, I think, more problems. Verse 8 in chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, by the way, present tense right there. It's a present tense. If we say that we have no continual sin, that's a good thing, right? Saying that we have no continual, not according to John. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. By the way, did he say you deceive yourself and the truth's not in you? Or did he say we? He's talking about believers here. Wait a minute. Believers live in continual sin? Have you ever met a believer? I mean, it's not encouraged. We're not saying, oh yeah, go party, have fun. We're not teaching Gnosticism or Epicureanism. We're just reflecting the fact that we are in imperfect human bodies attached to a sin nature that wants to dominate you, that's fighting and clawing for control of your soul on a moment-by-moment basis. And you know what? We yield to it many times in our life. And there's going to be ongoing sin. You know, the good news about it is every sin that you have committed, are committing, and will commit was paid for by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Less than half of a drop of his blood could have paid for all of your sins individually. I mean, the value of the work of Jesus Christ is just off the charts. That doesn't say, okay, well, based on that, let's just go live any way we want to. I mean, that's not the encouragement at all. But the point is this, if we're being honest with ourselves, this is what John is saying. In fact, in verse 8, he's really not talking about acts of sin there. He's talking about a source of sin. But verse 10, he's talking about acts of sin. So if you say you don't even have sin indwelling in you, you're a liar. And if you say you don't do sins, you're a liar. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, by the way, present tense participle. If we say that we do not continually sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And you see how that sets up a complete contradiction of 1 John 3, if we're talking about continual and habitual sin there. That is going to bring us to the close of our eternal security series. I know that I left some whatabouts just hanging out there. So anytime if there's something that you'd like to talk about, just my door's open. Would love to visit with any of you about other things that maybe I didn't cover. One of the things that's really good news is next week we get to celebrate the resurrection. So I hope you're able to come out. Um, I hope if you've got a friend that would be open to coming, I hope you would be willing to invite them. And then the week following that, we're going to start a study on a book you may have heard of called the book of Ephesians. And I cannot wait to get into that with you guys. And I hope that gives you something to look forward to. It's really exciting to know all that we have in Jesus Christ. So let's close there with a word of prayer and we'll have uh, Josh come up. Lord, thank you for 
your word and thank you for, I guess, guiding us through this time this morning and, and really making an attempt to understand this passage and, and understand how it fits with everything else you've revealed with your word. I'm sure there were mistakes along the way. I'm sure there were things that were not considered. Lord, I pray you just use your word as a refreshing cleansing for each one of us. Lord, I pray even just coming out of this message, although not the main point this morning, but Lord, I just pray we'd be, this is a room full of people and those who will listen online, that, that we are a group of people who desire from the bottom of our heart to respond to you in our daily life, to value what you say over and above our own evaluation. We just want to be those people because we know that in that response, we know that as we walk in light of that truth, that we can never be happier or more joyful or experience your peace more than in those moments. And so we want to see that for each one of us more consistently. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.